Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Sherry Turkle, no doubt best known to you for her in-depth work in the psychology of people's relationship with technology. Following such books as The Second Self and Reclaiming Conversation, describing her research at MIT, she's here today with her memoir, The Empathy Diaries. Then clinical trial results for Biogen's drug in mild Alzheimer's disease. I'll speak with Dr. Jim Galvin, a professor and director of the Comprehensive Center for Brain Health at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed Brown University neuroscientist Seth Horowitz. He's the author of The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. I mentioned to him a recent television commercial which featured a ringing telephone, and we all got up to answer it. Was this his intention? Of course. What happens is when you put an environmental signal into something that you're not expecting, you're not going to be necessarily paying attention to the television. You will suddenly shift your attention to what is normally the, the source of that signal. So if you hear a telephone on television, you will look for your telephone. Uh, it's sort of like a friend of mine saying that he really wished that musicians would stop putting police sirens in their tracks because it was making him all paranoid. He's listening to his music and all of a sudden... There's a siren coming down the street. Why? It's about what you think of as normal uh, signal placement in your environment. A telephone is not supposed to be on the screen. It's supposed to be in your pocket, or if you're my age, it's supposed to be on the desk attached by a cord. So it's just a matter of shifting your attention to get you to pay attention. Oh, here's a product in your pocket, and yet we've shown it to you somewhere else. So I have to say that easily, you know, 25%, if not more, of the commercial went by before we realized that. <laughs> this is why sometimes commercials are not really laid out properly. It's like, oh, we have something that will get someone's attention, but they don't think the next steps, like, where is their attention going? So if this was an ad for a telephone, very nice, but you're not looking at the screen. It doesn't really Actually, do I don't even know what it was an ad for, but it tricked this, us several times in a row. Yeah. Same, same thing. This is the problem of using sound in advertising. It's badly handled for the most part. I have a sound design company, and this is what we've been trying to get the word out. Use sound properly or don't use it at all. And unfortunately, most people just don't use it at all. Now, let's talk about Neuropop. You co-founded it. One of the things you do is sonic branding. Give us an example of sonic branding. I mean, the, the telephone ringing was the, well, let me get your attention right now. That's not sonic branding. No. The idea of sonic branding is the idea of identity. My background is in auditory neuroscience, and my partner, Lance Massey, is a composer. And he came up with the T-Mobile ringtone, that da-da-da-da-da. And that came up because he wanted to know how can we really get somebody's attention and lock this is only the T-Mobile sound. And not to do advertising for them, but the idea that I told him was you have to leave psychophysics, how the brain takes the world, from out the, the, the world out there and puts it in your brain. Sonic branding is coming up with a sound that locks your identification of something, an emotional response, an object, a beloved phone or a piece of equipment, in with all these psychological factors. So most people just make a sound and think, okay, I have played that sound 500 times 
when I'm uh, showing you a picture of um, this new car, you will therefore identify this sound with that car. Unfortunately, if you do sound wrong, it's very irritating. Or it's just too complicated, and you'll go, was that a bad soundtrack or something like that? It doesn't use the proper psychological principles. So the way we started with sonic branding was Lance called me one night just after I finished my PhD and said, what's psychophysics? And first I had to explain there's no dash. It's not psycho and physics. It's just mapping the outside world onto your brain. And the best way to do it is to take multiple senses and stack them up. So he was saying, well, I have a visual logo, and it's these little squares that went, I think it was gray, 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 pink, gray. And I said, well, if you make a sound pattern that matches the visual pattern, people will lock onto that. And so he came up with ba 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 to match the visual, and it became one of the two best-known audio logos of all time. The other one being Walter was always um, an Intel logo, ba 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 Yeah. What other kind of things can you think of that you are instantly identified with the sound? Old jingles. If you're trying to come up with a sound that identifies an object, it's much more complicated. It has to be short. It has to get a response very quickly. That's unique to that item. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with former Brown University researcher and neuroscientist Seth Horowitz. He's the author of The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, being original, having insights that are not popular, and learning about what you might call deep empathy. You know MIT professor Dr. Sherry Turkle from her books, including The Second Self and Life on the Screen. We'll talk about her memoir, The Empathy Diaries. Then we're waiting for an FDA approval, or not, for Biogen's drug for mild Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Jim Galvin, a professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, tells us about the clinical trials and their results. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Sherry Turkle. Well, Sherry, welcome back to the program. I'm so delighted to be here. I really, I really am delighted to be here. (laughs) And I am really delighted that you are here. Now, I do want to say so many people will be surprised to learn that you are not just your books. There's plenty more to you. Yeah, I'm like a whole person. Yes, and that's why one, (laughs) or part of why one would write a memoir. And uh, why did you do it? Well, I realized that there was a book that I always wanted to read, which was a book that really came clean about the relationship between the person and the person's passion and the person's loves and disappointments and insecurities and strengths. 
and the person's work and what made that work lit you know what drove that work what made that work passionate what drove that work to excellence and um i wanted to tell that story from my work and i wanted to write the book that i had wanted to read about a woman of my generation uh and i realized i had that story to tell and i um I wasn't ready to write it when I was younger, um, and there came a point in my life when I was ready to tell that story, and I'm very, very gratified and happy that I did. Well, at Tech Nation, we are often misconstrued. Uh, people who don't know us think we're all about technology and the best thing to buy, or who knows what they think. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, we're about the impact and the nature of technology. And you go one step further to the internal lives of humans dealing with that technology or involved with that technology. In fact, we meet at that point. Tell us where all of your work is and how that relates to who you are. Well, I real the through line in the Empathy Diaries is that my uh, motivation really from childhood was being empathic and the characteristic of empathy and not always being empathic, but trying to learn how to be empathic and discovering uh, when I hit MIT that technology and the people around technology didn't always see that as a value and in fact, when you pointed out to them ways in which technology was perhaps undermining empathy, they were dismissive and said, oh, no, no, uh, technology is just a tool. That's impossible. That couldn't possibly have anything to do with uh, human things like empathy. And when I discovered that there were significant ways in which technology, in my view and according to my research, was undermining empathy. For example, by having us look down at our phones instead of at each other's eyes and brought that research to my colleagues, I would still get this, oh, come on, technology is just a tool, you know, kind of like as though I was a, an irritant <laughs> rather than bringing them, uh, you know, a significant problem to look at. Now, these days, I think people are much more aware that that is a problem. But um, the experience of being uh, a woman at a technical institution who was trying to, uh, I don't want to say push that storyline, but, you know, tell that version of the story, I think shows how resistant the technology community, but really all of us have been to learning that technology doesn't just do things for us, but to us as people. Now, everyone thinks they know empathy, what empathy may be, what it may not be. Let's talk about that. What is empathy? Well, my definition of empathy goes a little further than other people's. Right now, we're talking about empathy all the time. We say Joe Biden is the empathy president. We need empathy to get along with people who we don't agree with politically. You know, we, we, we use the word very loosely. I use the word um, to really mean putting yourself not only in someone else's place, but putting yourself in someone else's problem. That is to say, 
putting yourself in their problem long enough that you make a commitment to them to really understand how they see the world, why they're having trouble in the world as they see it, and saying to them, hey, I'm going to take a bit of a walk with you in your shoes and try to be with you enough so that you can count on me to deal with this problem so that you can be with me and have uh, a, you know, a, a companion on the road as you continue. Because that experience, that experience of a mentor, for example, not just saying, oh, I'll listen to you and I'll, you know, I'll give you a little advice, but really understanding why being at Harvard after living in Brooklyn all my life was hard for me, what I needed to overcome in order to succeed, and then sticking with me and being there for me really is why I'm on this program today and why I was been, I've been able to be a professor and why I've been able to write books. And, and it doesn't have to do just with a little listening, but it has to do with somebody saying, I understand, I'm there for you, and come back and see me again. We will be together again, again together, together again. That's empathy. That's commitment. And I try to sell this more complex and more committed version of empathy because I really think also that as we come out of the pandemic, um, it's this kind of empathic experience with each other that we really need in order to heal. First, I think many people have never heard of that definition of empathy. And as they think of it, they think, and I'm, I'm projecting here, but I'm betting that most people have never experienced it. They've never experienced it for themselves, and they've certainly never experienced it in terms of what they're willing to do for someone else. It's more than, well, I feel ya. Yeah. So California of me, I feel yeah. ya. It's like the dynamics of a life. I think the second thing that works for me here, um, having read your book, is that going back to the old A Life Unexamined, you describe in the opening chapter living under a regime of pretend as a child. And I think many people live under regimes of pretend in their families, but you put it into words. Let's go there. Well, my regime of pretend was that my mother was married to a man named Charles Zimmerman, and she divorced him when I was two. She left him when I was one. I was never told why. And I wasn't allowed to say his name. And later I would reconstruct why that was. She lived in a community where divorce was unknown, where divorce was a terrible thing. She was fearful for her own possibilities for remarriage. Uh, she only wanted to be remarried and be reabsorbed into a community where she could be accepted. The story is a mystery of who was this man that I wasn't allowed to say his name or know his name or say his name. I was, I was, as soon as she remarried, I had to pretend that my name was Sherry Turkle, even though my name was Sherry Zimmerman. So I had to 
go to school, use the name Sherry Zimmerman, hide all my papers. I had a special closet in which I hid all my school papers so that nobody would see them, use a fake name. I mean, really, I, I, it was extreme in order to protect this secret. And empathy for me, and this is why I think, you know, the letters I've been getting from people who've uh, read the book that are so moving is that empathy for me, I write in the book, was not a psychological virtue. It was a survival mechanism to try to not go crazy because I was trying to figure out what the people, the loving people in my environment had on their minds that they would do this to me. Like, why would anybody do this? What, what were they thinking? That they would have me keeping this secret, lying, keeping my father's name, not saying my father's name. The first time I saw my, my name written out was in a book that was inscribed to Sherry Zimmerman that was hidden in the back of a closet. And I was like looking for a little shard of evidence of who I might be, and I finally found it. But I was not allowed to even talk about my father or his identity. That can make you very, you know, as a psychologist, I know that that's not a good start. But <laughs> I think the tenacity to keep myself sane really was in, 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 in my search for shards of evidence of what the truth was. And I found them in these little bits and pieces and also in playing these games, these mind games of what might be the motivation for keeping these secrets and what might cause people to want to lie in this way. And I did that for my entire, so that's the, the origin of my interest in putting myself into someone else's head. Uh comes out of this, you know, not very good start. Family secrets. Family secrets. Family secrets. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Sherry Turkle, known best for her in-depth work in the psychology of people's relationship with technology. She's the Abby Rockefeller Mose, Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT. The author of numerous books, her studies into digital culture include The Second Self, Life on the Screen, Alone Together, and Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. She's here today with her memoir, The Empathy Diaries. Another point which I found pretty fascinating in the book because uh, starting perhaps in someone's teenage years or into their 20s or even later, there comes a time in which you want to intentionally hurt your parents, one parent or another. Seek seek to hurt them. And I have to say, now that many of us are parents, you're like, I put so much energy into you, and now you want to hurt me? What is this? But this is true. People, If you reflect, there may be times in your life when you actively seek to hurt them. Oh, yes. Well, I had a... Um... You know, people say, was it, was it tough to write a memoir? And actually writing a memoir for me, writing this book, was a, a very, very healing and uh, it, was a, it was a very powerful and very uh, gratifying experience in the end because I 
discovered so much about myself and my relationships. It was it was very uh, affirming. But one of the things that was, I want to say, excruciating, I told stories in the book that were so painful, and the most painful were the ones where I admitted to cruelties towards my mother because I was so angry at my, because she died when I was 19, 18. She died when I was 18. And I was still so angry at her for having taken my father away without ever telling me why. Now, the reader in the course of the book not only learns why, but learns that she saved me in doing so, that she had her reasons, that she, in my view, she saved me. And I come in the course of the book, when I find my father, it's an opportunity, and I do. I hire detectives. I mean, I'm not the only Nancy Drew in this book. I hire detectives. I find him. <laughs> but she, she's, a, she's my hero in the end. But she died before I knew all that. And I'm so angry at her. And here she's a woman who found out when I was eight years old, nine years old, that she had metastatic breast cancer. Given the treatments of those days, she was pretty much given a death sentence. She lived nine more years. She had every kind of treatment. She kept it from me so that I would go away to college. It's a miracle that she kept it from me. I mean, one of the themes in the book was maybe I knew but wouldn't admit to myself what I knew. In any case, theoretically, unconsciously, I didn't know. Um, I went away to college, angry at her, loving her, knowing what she you know, how much she wanted me to succeed, how much she loved me, how I was the center of her world, but angry at her that she had taken my father away and that we weren't even allowed to talk about it, how she'd made me lie about my name and that I had a father and I mean, everything. And every once in a while, to get to your point, this is a long prologue, this anger came out in tiny cruelties tiny, tiny, but terrible cruelties, because I was so clever that I knew how to hurt her the worst. And one of the things, I don't know what you're thinking of, but one of the cruelties that I did, that I say in the book, it, it came out of the book, I'm sure 12 times, and then I put it back in the book, and then it came out, and I put it back, was when I went up for my um, interview at Radcliffe, and you know, I'm going to get accepted at Radcliffe. I didn't know it at the time, but that meant so much to me. And she came up with me. It was, the, it was, was a tremendous cost for my family that we came up by train. We stayed overnight in Boston, in Cambridge. We went together into the dean's office and she walked ahead of me. Because the first part of the interview, we were there together. And I saw that one of the steel clips that she used to keep her bouffant hair like in a high, crazy helmet at night. It was supported by this armature of clips that she had forgotten to take out a clip. And when we walked back to the hotel, knowing that it would torment her, I said, you forgot to take out the clip when we went in to see Dean Elliott. And I said it in such a way that it was as though she had revealed us to be who we were. She had shown us up. She had 
made it clear that we were the kind of Brooklyn bagel babies that didn't deserve to be there. And I knew I had deflated her and humiliated her for, for really no reason except this perhaps unconscious anger about the things that I could not say to her. Like, why can't I say my father's name? Why can't I tell anybody who my father is? I had not yet ever told a single human being that I had a father other than the man she had remarried, this Milton Turkle. It was a total, you know, I thought like, you know, God would come down and like, who knows what he would do if I gave away my mother's secret. So that, that, that story shows me as so cruel that the fact that I put it in, where I'm telling you. You are a brave lady. <laughs> I'm so brave. <laughs> I'll tell you. I mean, we all have things we would, I just say we would never admit to anyone. Not as bad as that. Not as bad as that. Honestly. <laughs> I don't know. We, there's no way to tell. If clip or no clip, you made it into Radcliffe. You made it, you know, obviously part of Harvard at that point, and you ended up at MIT of all places. And here you were, a psychologist. So you weren't really a techie. I mean, psychology is a science. There's a lot of science, right. a lot of engineering, a lot of technology at MIT. And uh, and you have been there ever since as a professor. And I was, I was just noting at the time you were there, you know, um, you could ask just about any, any technologist in Silicon Valley or anywhere saying, well, name, you know, like, Two, three, four famous MIT fellas. It'd be fellas, yeah. I'm afraid. And um, they're all there. <laughs> they're all in the book. But without naming names, <laughs> there is, we're not going to name any names. They're in the book. Um, but without any names, I would like to say sometimes you run into people who, who or a person usually leaps to mind, who doesn't think your work is very important or that you're doing valuable work or or good work. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, I think that I've had uh, various strategies at different times, and some I'm more proud of than others, but let me run down a few um, because I, I've, you know, I, I think that I've had a long career in the tech, uh, you know, working this particular minefield in the tech industry. And I've done it from being a young and insecure young woman who had a great idea. Uh, people were saying the computer is just a tool. And I'm saying, no, the computer is an intimate machine. So you start out not right. being one of them and exactly. then disagreeing right. with them. Great start, Sherry. Right, exactly. <laughs> so from the get-go, I was not with them. And I didn't, I was supposed to come. My, 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 I was not supposed to do that when I got there. I was supposed to study how artificial intelligence was kind of making its way through cognitive science. I was not supposed to be like discovering this new field. I had, they had like another job that they thought I would be good at. But I immediately started meeting people for whom the computer was like their heart and soul. And I was like on a different track, a much more subversive track. And so in the beginning, when I had no, people were just saying, no, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. You won't get tenure. It's not a good idea. But I was, completely intent. You're listening to MIT professor Dr. Sherry Turkle and her memoir, The Empathy Diaries. We'll talk more after a break. 
podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, results for Biogen's drug for mild Alzheimer's disease coming up for a final FDA decision in June. Stay with us. Tech Nation. I've been speaking with MIT professor Dr. Sherry Turkle about her new memoir, The Empathy Diaries. Anyway, I knew I was right because I was talking to people who were telling me what their lives were like. There's no way to tell me I'm wrong. And my first strategy was just to keep my head down and do my work. It was a very girl strategy, I think, in the sense that it was kind of like, okay, you don't like it, You're not going to invite me to your parties and your meetings and your conferences and your things. I'm just going to take a desk in the corner and and bring my lunch, and I'm just going to write the best book. My work will out. Yes. My work will out. Yeah. Exactly. My work will out. And I wrote a book that came out in 1984 called The Second Self. And, on you know, it made the front page of the New York Times. It was was really... um, It was complete. I mean, whatever you think of me, it was the first book that said the computer isn't a tool. It's a second self. And I think it was a very persuasive uh, book. And so they fired me. (laughs) And um, obviously. (laughs) And and so and so so they fired me. And um, when they and, and so my attitude when they fired me was this is not right. This is not right. But I wasn't surprised. No one along the way really had said, oh, I would love this idea of your, you know. <laughs> do more of it, please. <laughs> we, do more, please do more. You know, this is exactly the path we want you on. But really, I understood that to give me tenure meant giving an in, you know, somebody who, who did not think that engineering values were going to be good human values for the computer culture, who saw the computer as a, as an evocative human, not just a tool, it was going to be deeply embedded in our emotional and, 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 uh, and uh, 
value-laden lives, every aspect of our lives, it was going to change how children grew up, how we formed relationships. Anyway, I I went to them. Giving you tenure would give you legitimacy. Yes, and as somebody... That they could not have. Right. Well, and also giving this whole area of study legitimacy, whereas they really would like to see the computer... At that period, they really wanted to see the computer as a tool. Um, and... Uh, and so I actually, the book describes um, in very cool terms, my tenure battle, which took 24 hours. Well, it's not a surprise to anyone that you continue to be a professor at MIT. So how you got from one place to another, that's in the book. But you did come away with three crucial lessons. It's hard to be a difficult woman, but sometimes you have to step up. It's like <laughs> literally becoming a difficult woman. <laughs> Number two, this applies to anybody, fight first on the ground you share with your opponent. Interesting. And number three, don't underestimate the price of a fight. Yes. Let's, let's talk about those lessons. Well, so everybody knows about being a difficult woman. I wasn't winning any popularity contests for, um, but, you know, it's important, you know, temperamentally slinking away probably was like more my thing, but I stood up. But the, the third is really what I want to spend, uh, talk about, which is that um, these days when I, when I work with young women, not young women, when I work with women and women and men about how to take a bump in the road professionally, I stress that you're going to have a bump in the road. And when you have a bump in the road, step back and move forward with confidence. You've won. You've had a narcissistic injury. Take good care of yourself. Take a few weeks off. Accept that you've, what you've lost is your sense of invulnerability and that you're always going to be loved. Accept that that's going to hurt, but move forward with confidence because you've won. And life and work is not filled with places where you're going to get a lot of love and people stroking you and make that workplace your own. I didn't do that. I looked to work because of my own history as a place where I wanted love. And so when I won, but with a slap, not an embrace, I, I don't want to say I, I seized defeat out of the jaws of victory, but I sort of did. That is to say, my reaction, because I so wanted to be embraced by the institution and say, you know, people saying, Sherry, what a mistake we made. We really want a computer cultural critic here at MIT. That is exactly how we're like, changing everything. We may not have so, another engineer. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. We that changes this changes everything. You know, actually that book you wrote, that was brilliant. All those things we said, you're a pathbreaker. They weren't gonna say that. They wanted to get rid of me for you know. I was so I, I needed somebody there to say that. And of course that wasn't going to, so I, my reaction was to go back metaphorically 
to that place in the library where I brought my thermos of coffee and my books, and I just went back to doing my best work and sort of keeping my head down and doing, you know, devoting myself to my students, you know, nurturing a generation of students who are now fanned out across the United States, you know, doing this work. I'm so proud of them. Um, many of them have come back to MIT and are, you know, are at MIT as professors. But in terms of my posture at the Institute itself, I, I was not aggressive enough to, 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 to really assert myself on that stage. And I really learned from that because now I really mentor, an, an, you know, another generation of, it was too much for my generation of women, I think, who, and for my temperament, which is, I think, what the book shows, to, to make that leap. But I think now women uh, and men who uh, are, are, are doing innovative work um, can do better than I did and, and, uh, and step up after a bump and not hide. So I think there's a lot to learn from my, uh, from my example. And I really try to mentor people to do better than I did. Um, uh, when they when they have a bump in the road. Now, I know we're talking about your memoir today, but I have to ask you, because we've spoken so many times about your professional work, your academic work, and um, I'm thinking about many of these books that you've written, um, Life on the Screen, The Second Self, etc. cetera. Um, today, in the pandemic, you know, we're all Zooming each other, Microsoft teaming each other, mm-hmm. uh, emailing each other. Everything is electronic so, so that life can go on in work. Um, how have your insights evolved over this time of pandemic? Oh, I've discovered uh, many, many new things uh, uh, during this time of, of forced, uh, of kind of forced technology, gluttonous technology use. Um, the first thing is really uh, uh, how the human spirit adapts when the human spirit must adapt. You know, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm the last person who would sign up to do remote <laughs> remote learning. I love a classroom of students. I love the buzz and the hum, and I love everything about being a teacher and mentoring students in person. That's just me. But, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not a negative person. I'm not a spoiler. And I have become the absolutely best Zoom instructor that I could be. And if we'd asked you a year ago, you'd go, what? Huh? (laughs) <laughs> well, I would have said, uh, I would have just said, can I sign up last for that? Could I do administrative work? Could I be the one who alphabetizes? <laughs> you know, <could> you... <laughs> Instead of that, could I just alphabetize things, you know, for two years? You know, could you give me every kind of grunt work? I have absolutely, you know, enjoyed the challenge of pushing this technology to the max. And... um And I think that that's, you know, important to know about 
technology. It's important to know about yourself. It's important that we all know that when we have to, we can push technology to the max. But um, I've just, you know, in my conversations, for example, with uh, psych psychotherapists who've been Zooming all their uh, patients, who've been, you know, who have had to be Zooming all their patients, the best teachers and the best psychotherapists don't just celebrate what we can do on Zoom. We also integrate into our practice some acknowledgement of what we are losing so that the experience of doing it the best we can with the limitations of the technology includes an acknowledgement of the loss that we are feeling because we're not together. What have I learned? To, to sum that up, I mean, that was kind of like, I've learned that we can make ourselves use what we have, but if we reflect on what we've done, let us not glamorize this and pretend that this is, has not been a loss. And the way I would put it in terms of how I conceptualize technology is that we have to really make sure that we don't do the typical thing we do with technology, which is to say, this was better than nothing. And then somehow say, you know, this was just better. And that is so often what we do with technology. We go from saying this was better than nothing to somehow this is just better. And we start to say, I don't need to go to those meetings. I can do education by Zoom. I can save some money. I can do this. I can do this. So that's a better way to close out this conversation. That's what I've learned, that we're adaptable, but let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> that's a great line. Sherry, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. I thank you for coming, and I hope you come back and see us again. I always love being here, Maura. Bye-bye. My guest today is Dr. Sherry Turkle. Her memoir is The Empathy Diaries. It's published by Penguin Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. After all the human clinical trials, there's a wait for a final decision by the FDA. Biogen's drug for mild cognitive Alzheimer's is exactly at that stage. Will the FDA approve it? I spoke with Dr. Jim Galvin, a professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and the director of the Comprehensive Center for Brain Health. Well, Dr. Galvin, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. You know, there's been a lot in the Alzheimer's treatment news lately about Biogen and its new drug, as well as uh, its upcoming PDUFA decision at the FDA. And I have to tell you, listeners, if you don't know what that is, PDUFA stands for the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, which is three decades old now. So, Dr. Galvin, can you tell us what a PDUFA date is and where that is in getting drugs to market? Well, that's a great question. So, the PDUFA date really represents the sort of the endpoint of all of the work done. So, the trials were done. They were analyzed, the results were discussed, an application was submitted to the FDA, it was reviewed by their advisory committee, it was reviewed by the FDA, and now we're waiting for a decision. And that decision, is the date is June 7, 2021. So at that time, we'll know whether aducanumab is approved or not. But it could actually not just be yes or no, there could be other options, right? 
There could be other conditions attached to the yes, and there could be conditions attached to the no, but we won't know that until June 7th. So an, an example of a condition to a yes might be, it'll be approved, but you'll have to do some additional surveillance of people who receiving the medication. Um, or a conditional no could be, it's not a hard no, but we would like to see some other study or some other analysis or some other aspect of it. Or it could be a, a hard yes where it's approved and go ahead and make it available or a hard no where no, it's not approved and that's the end of the program. Um, so we really won't know that again until, until June 7th. Now this drug is what's called first in class. And for all intents and purposes, that means there ain't a drug there that works for whatever you're, you're going after here. And in the arc of early, early Alzheimer's, pre-diagnosed Alzheimer's to late stage Alzheimer's, what stage is this drug attempting to address? So this drug really is addressing people in the earliest detectable stages of disease, either something called mild cognitive impairment. So these are people who have a memory problem but are still functionally doing uh, quite well and independent to people who have mild Alzheimer's disease. So, so, so these are not people in the moderate or severe stages of the disease. And so how does someone tell they're in that stage? I mean, is it because their family members and friends have told them? It, can they take a test? How do they know they're there? Well, we make determinations of stage really with a, a, a sort of a multimodal or a multi-tiered approach. So part of it's interviewing the patient and a family member. Part of it's the patient doing pencil and paper kind of test. And part of it is the physician's uh, physical exam and review of all their laboratory tests. And we put that all together and we determine a stage of disease. Now, what's the idea behind this drug? So this drug, which has a funny name, it's called aducanumab. Um, it's a monoclonal antibody. So this is an immunotherapy. Uh, the idea is that the infusion of this antibody will bind to the protein that deposits in the brain in people with Alzheimer's disease, a protein called amyloid beta protein. So this is the protein that leads to plaques being formed in the Alzheimer brain. And the idea is that if, we, if, that's, if amyloid is the cause of Alzheimer's disease, if you can remove amyloid, you should be able to improve the disease from where it was before. So the idea is that this monoclonal antibody is given to people with the disease. It removes amyloid from the brain of those people who have disease, and it should improve symptoms and hopefully halt the progression of any further symptoms. We all know about amyloid plaques on the brain in Alzheimer's. So catching this early and stopping it, I think is a pretty simple concept. It's not simple to execute, but I, we can see what you're going after here. Yeah, I mean, over the last 30 years, the research done in Alzheimer's has really linked the, the clumping of amyloid and its deposit in the brain as being sort of the trigger point for people developing the disease. So everybody with Alzheimer's disease has amyloid in the brain. So if everybody with Alzheimer's has amyloid in the brain, then removing the amyloid should, in theory improve people who have the disease. And that was the goal of this clinical trial testing aducanumab. So let's get to the specifics of the clinical trial that was done, the big one called 
Emerge had some 1,600 patients and their family members in it. How did it work? What did it do? So there were two studies. One was called Emerge and one was called Engage. We'll talk about Emerge first. So this was what we call a a phase three. So this is the stage just before uh, approval. And it's multi-center, so lots of different centers, and it was randomized. So some people got placebo and some people got the active medication. Uh, And the idea was, can we look at the safety and the effectiveness or efficacy of aducanumab? Uh, The primary way we looked at that was change in some scores on different tests. And one of the things we looked at was something called a change in the clinical dementia rating scale. So this is a what we consider a gold standard way of rating a person's overall status. Um, and, and so that was the primary outcome. And then we had secondary outcomes, which looked at other things. So we looked at performance on pencil and paper test of memory and thinking. Uh, we looked for how they do on their activities of daily living, so their everyday functioning. Um, and we looked at their Um, scans to look at the amount of amyloid in their brain. So we looked primarily at this global rating and secondarily looked at how they performed on different types of tests, memory tests, everyday functioning tests, and imaging studies of their brain. So you actually had a picture of the plaques as they were on the brain from the beginning through to the end. Correct. Now, where did the family members come in? How did they participate? Well, the family members are key to understanding what's going on in a person who has Alzheimer's and mild cognitive impairment and are really key to a clinical trial. So this this measure that I mentioned, the clinical dementia rating scale, the way it's done is it's a semi-structured interview. So we have, as a clinician, we have some guide questions and guide points, and we talk to the patient and we talk to the caregiver separately to try to get a sense of what they're noticing. And then the clinic, the physician, the study physician, has to put all of the information together to come up with a global rating. In the absence of a, a, an informed caregiver who's observant, it's very difficult to pick up these subtle changes in people who have mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's disease. And again, though, some are on placebo. So any hopeful, over-optimistic results would have been observed and discounted? Well, anytime you're doing a study, we always try to have a placebo arm because the truth is if you put people in clinical trials and you talk to them a lot and they're coming in multiple times, you know, there is some benefit to that. And so there is something called the placebo effect, right? So even though the drug, the placebo is not an active drug, some people do respond a little bit to the placebo. And so what you really want to look is the drug effect different than the placebo effect. And that's the way the study is done over, you know, the time of the study. So if it was six months or 12 months or 18 months or five years, the longer you do the study, the more you should see a difference between the treated group and the placebo group. So what were the results of Emerge? So what we found from Emerge was that it met its primary outcome. And that's important there was a significant reduction in the clinical decline compared to the placebo group on both the primary outcome, that was the clinical dementia rating sum of boxes, that was the name of that scale, and on its secondary endpoints, the pencil and paper tests, 
called the ADAS-COG, that's the, the abbreviation for the pencil and paper test, and for the activity of daily living scale, looking at their functional ability. So it met both the primary and secondary outcomes. And this was supported by the changes that we saw in the, the brain imaging, the biomarker findings. So you saw fewer or at least a holding of the amyloid plaques on the brain? There was a reduction in the amount of amyloid in the brain in the 10 milligram group, that's the high dose group, compared to the placebo. So we actually saw a reduction. We saw reductions. It was a, a less amyloid in the brain of the persons who received the 10 milligram dose. And that was a statistically different um, change compared to those people on placebo. That's big news in Alzheimer's. That, that is big news. Now, I will tell you that sometimes other drugs and other clinical studies have shown some changes in amyloid without showing any change in clinical abilities. And some medicines that are currently approved, that we currently use to treat Alzheimer's, change some symptoms without changing the pathology. So it's really, really novel and important here. The take-home message here is that it appears that aducanumab improves clinical symptoms and addresses the underlying deposits of amyloid that are occurring in the brain. Now, you mentioned another study, the ENGAGE study. What was that? Well, the ENGAGE study was another study that was done um, at this roughly the same time. It did not meet its primary outcome. And, and we understand a lot of the reasons why it didn't. But one of the things important is that within the ENGAGE study, the individuals who actually had exposure to the high dose had outcomes that were very, very similar to what we saw in Emerge. So again, even though Engage didn't reach all of its outcomes, in the high dose group, which is the group in Emerge that had the greatest clinical benefit and showed the most change in the amyloid scans, in Engage, those individuals also showed a similar change in, in their scores. So we have supportive evidence. So even though it's not a positive study, it supported the findings that we saw in Emerge. And that's also important because you always like to see a second piece of evidence. So you were able to go back and carve out a, almost an abandoned study. Hey, wait a minute. This portion of it is exactly like our engaged study. Well, a subset, right? So a section of that data is supportive. Uh, again, I want to reiterate, it didn't, the, the ENGAGE study did not meet its primary outcome. I don't want to say something that's not true. But in an analysis of a subset of people who received an adequate amount of the 10 milligram dose, which we know is probably going to be the effective dose, those people's findings were very similar to what we saw in the EMERGE study. So a supportive piece of information. It supports the outcomes that we saw uh, in the EMERGE study. Well, we still have to wait for the PDUFA decision, but I worry about the patients who were doing so well in the EMERGE trial. Will, will they have to wait until this drug is approved, if it's approved, to get its benefit? Well, there are two ways of looking at that. Um, so some people might choose to wait because for whatever reason, um, but there was also another study that was done called Embark, and this was a global, so worldwide an open label, so everybody got drug, so single arm, everybody got 10 milligram drug. Um, and this was assessing what we call the long-term safety 
and continued look at the, uh, the efficacy, the effectiveness of the drug uh, in people who were previously already actively participating, in people who were previously already actively participating in the, any of the aducanumab clinical studies at the time they were terminated back in March of 2019. So this would allow us to look at the long-term safety and the effectiveness and tolerability of aducanumab in people who are already on the dose, and they will continue to follow. Now, if you chose not to be in the Embark study, then yes, you would have to wait until hearing the decision in June as to whether you could start the medicine again. But you could go on. And in fact, those people have all the data that was collected in the Emerge clinical trial plus what they're now collecting. Yeah, and the study is having is currently enrolling, so people who were in the study can still enroll, and it's really expected to be one of the largest trials ever done in Alzheimer's disease. We estimate there's going to be about 2,400 people uh, in the Embark study. So I think the Embark will allow us to look at a lot more information about the long-term safety and efficacy of aducanumab in people with mild cognitive impairment and with the mild stages of Alzheimer's disease. Well, Dr. Galvin, I very much appreciate you coming on. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. I'd be delighted to. Thank you so much for having me on. Dr. Jim Galvin is a professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and the director of the Comprehensive Center for Brain Health. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.